Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Previously, I have referenced the somewhat famous meme of Cookie Monster impatiently tapping his furry blue fingers on a table waiting for something, anything. Don't know about you, but me feel like Cookie Monster these days. We do have new Mets coaches to tell you about. We have some minor league news, which is strong. And today, we'll also run through the best Mets outfielders of all time. The other thing we'll do, we'll take a moment to delve into the court of public opinion today. We'll go back to when baseball wasn't locked out. And we'll ask the question, which team has won the offseason so far? The Athletic did a poll recently, and I have here in my hand the results secured by the firm of PricewaterhouseCoopers. The big reveal, and possibly me get cookies next. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh, yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while your coffee is brewing. I mean, who doesn't love Cookie Monster? Even when Family Guy once had him freebasing cookie dough in a restroom stall for laughs 20 years ago, we can always look to the cookie, so to speak, when times are tough. Josh Lewin with you. We are all looking to the cookie these days as we wait for the players and the owners to figure things out. Here's what we've got today in terms of embers for the old hot stove. We got the new look coaching staff ready to take their turn on the catwalk. Yeah, on the catwalk. We'll go through the hires one by one. Then we'll be joined by Aram Layton of JustBaseball.com. They've come out with their list of top 10 Mets prospects. And yes, we'll continue our series on best Mets by position. Today, we are roaming the outfield. Too deep like Daryl Strawberry or too shallow like Juan Lagares. Now, we'll do it just right. And yeah, Lagares like to play shallow like Andrew Jones always did because it, it is easier and it is more fun to sprint back on a ball than come in. Mickey Rivers, when he was with the Yankees, once went back on three balls in one inning with Catfish Hunter on the mound, banged into the wall in center all three times, never did make the catch. So he came into the dugout when the inning was over, put catcher's gear on his back, told Catfish that's how he's going to go back out there. But at any rate, our outfield coverage will be dead letter perfect, and at the end we'll have some, uh, let's call them tidbits, little baseball trail mix, if you will, or whatever's in those little plastic packets you get on the airplane. A couple wheat checks, some pretzels, a Cheez-It, the occasional Cheeto sometimes gets in there somehow, but I don't know. All right, so the poll by The Athletic asking baseball fans to gauge the offseason. The Mets were, you betcha, 
Top of the table, 40% of respondents saying so far they've improved the most. Next at 38%, the Rangers, who do have ties to the Mets in many ways, and they will be at City Field this 4th of July weekend. I'll give you some Rangers-Mets crossover, besides the fact that's where yours truly was for 10 years before coming to, to do Mets radio, trading out y'all for you guys. Uh, Lee Mazzilli for Ron Darling and Walt Terrell, one of the great Mets trades of all time, April Fool's Day of 82, Mets will later trade Terrell for Howard Johnson. Chef's kiss. More Texas-New York connections. Of course, Buck Showalter now, former Rangers skipper, comes to Flushing. Buck, by the way, was not the manager of the Rangers in 08 when the Rangers played at Shea. And memorably, during a rain delay, the Rangers were out there sliding on the tarp for 15 minutes. Ian Kinsler was the ringleader, as I recall, along with Michael Young and Josh Hamilton. And of all people, Milton Bradley joining in. So uh, with the Mets uh, improving their roster, we may be looking at them taking on the highest payroll in the whole sport. And since it's not my money, I say that's great. But the, the cautionary tale to be told is that 30 years ago, the Mets also had the highest payroll. And what ended up was a book written by Bob Clappish and John Harper, the latter of whom is impossible to guard and pick up basketball, trust me. The book was called The Worst Team Money Can Buy. Well, the happy news I can offer, this is not 1992. And I know that because Roseanne Arnold is, is not on my TV set. The 92 Mets very nearly lost 92 games. But Buck Showalter is not Jeff Torborg. Uh, the big ticket free agent signing is not Bobby Bonilla, but instead a guy who rhymes with Bax Perser. And to be fair to that 92 team, there were some key injuries, most notably Brett Saberhagen, two-time Cy Young winner, be like losing to Grom. Uh, and those injuries played a major role in the 92 season going straight into the toilet. But also, I think it's fair to say those 92 Mets were not really perfectly constructed. They didn't have a single player with an OPS of better than 800. Chico Walker, 34-year-old utility infielder, came the closest. He was at 792. With all that in mind, it is very hard to fathom that 2022 becomes 1992 Part 2. Not with Nathaniel William Showalter III in charge of these proceedings. And yes, Buck's in charge of the roster, but who are his lieutenants? Let's segue to that. We've been wondering about it for a while, and slowly but surely, things have clicked into place. We'll hear next week from Buck and GM Billy Epler about what each of these guys brings. But here for now are some coach-by-coach notes for your fine, fine self. Leading off, the bench coach. What's old is new again. It's Glenn Sherlock, Holmes. Now, Glenn Sherlock may not have been offered had Buck's longtime buddy Brian Butterfield actually gotten vaccinated, but the MLB policy is very strict, very clear. No jab, no job. So uh, you got former Mets first base coach Tom Goodwin in that same boat. He's not going to coach in the big leagues this year for that same reason. So Sherlock returns to the Mets. He was here in 2017, 18, 19 under both Terry Collins and Mickey Calloway. Long-standing relationship with Showalter. They worked together with the Yankees and Diamondbacks. And the epitaph for Sherlock will someday read, Here lies Mariano Rivera's first professional manager with the 1990 Gulf Coast Yankees. Batting second for the coaching staff, hitting coach Eric Chavez. And I told you a bit about him last week. He'll essentially be the fourth Mets hitting coach in the last four years, but not far removed from actually swinging a bat himself, and he did that very well. Batting third, got the first base coach slash outfield slash base running coordinator, 
Wayne Kirby, longtime Buck Showalter favorite, who will keep things loose off the field for sure. Batting cleanup, something he never did as a pro ball player. Third base coach, infield instructor, Joey Cora. Plenty of coaching experience for the Pirates and White Sox. Batting fifth, you got the bullpen coach, Craig Bjornson, owner of recent World Series rings from Houston and Boston. He's a bit of a Chris Farley type, a cut up off the field. He will fit in famously with the bullpen catchers, Eric Langille and the immortal Dave Racanello. So there you have it. And along with those five guys, the Mets will employ two coaches who were actually in the organization last year. Got Jeremy Hefner back as the pitching coach. Jacob Barnes, who uh, the club hired last offseason in player development. He's now the team's assistant hitting coach at the age of 34. He was born around the time the Mets lost to the Dodgers in the 88 NLCS. Thanks in part to some rather ill-timed home runs from Kirk Gibson and Mike Sosha. Anyway, that is the coaching staff tip to tail. And as Elaine Bennis was once told by a weird potential date about the guy's parents, eventually you'll meet them. And I got a quick Seinfeld aside. I'm going to do this. I think only I will find this interesting, but I'm sharing it with you anyway. My immediate boss doing the UCLA football basketball games for Learfield out in L.A., his dad is the actor who tells George's mother on Seinfeld that if she cries, she'll botch the eye job she just got just before she gets in the car with Kramer and Kramer stops short, which, of course, is George's father's old move. Doesn't this sound like the perfect thing to make up if you wanted to tell a small lie about yourself? I, tw- I absolutely trust my boss on this one, that his dad was this guy. Because you can't say my dad played George Costanza or my dad runs NBC, but... You say, my dad was Estelle Costanza's ophthalmologist and had two lines in the Ass Man episode. That is plausible because you, you can't make bold statements if you can't back them up, which reminds me of one more thing about which to digress, and I will do that for you right now. There is a great story in baseball circles about a guy named Andy Strasberg, longtime marketing executive with the Padres some other teams, born in the Bronx, and as a kid, somehow forged a relationship with the great Roger Maris at Yankee Stadium. Andy was like a 12-year-old kid who would chat up Roger from the right field bleachers in between innings. So now Andy Strasburg is in college. Roger Maris has been traded to the Cardinals, and they're in Pittsburgh. And Andy Strasburg tells a couple of his buddies, you know, I'm, I'm kind of friends with Roger Maris. And his buddies completely call him out. Yeah, right. You know Roger Maris. Like George knew Keith Hernandez, as we circle back to Seinfeld. The friends basically say, come on, liar. Let's get in the car. We're driving to Forbes Field. We'll sit in the outfield bleachers. We'll see if you know Roger Maris. So they all drive to Pittsburgh. And in the bottom of the first, as the Cardinals head out to the field, Roger Maris looks up in the stands and says, Andy Strasburg, what the hell are you doing in Pittsburgh? See, you got to back this stuff up. I love that story. I have no idea where I was here. Oh, I, I know. One final coaching note. That's what I want to give you from within the division. Do you guys realize that the Nationals are now like a Mets coaching staff old folks home? You got Tim Bogar as the bench coach. Pat Russell is the assistant hitting coach. Eric Young Jr. is the first base coach. Gary DeSarcina ends up over there as her third base coach. Ricky Bonus is now their bullpen coach. Henry Blanco, a.k.a. Hank White, is the catching coach. So there you go, expatriated Mets all rallying together in D.C. All right, our next order of business, we're going to do the Mets' all-time best outfielders. And if we do this as we've been doing it, looking at best seasons by wins above replacement value, it's a very interesting discussion. And I'm going to set this parameter for you because I understand 
that baseball is a game where there's safety and numbers that we know. I mean, not just 300 batting average, knowing that that's good, but numbers like 56 and 61, with or without the asterisk. They speak to us. We know what 2632 means. Powerful stories communicated wordlessly and effortlessly through a vocabulary of numbers. So I know there aren't any legendary narratives yet in baseball about wins above replacement value. Uh, Tony Gwynn hit 394. Most people remember that. It's legendary. It's recognized. Mike Trout once having a war of 9.7. That is arguably way more impressive, but nobody cares. With war, the the weakness, of course, is that there's no metric to account for, say, when a a 38-year-old veteran sits a 22-year-old teammate down and explains to him how and why he's got to work harder. The kid has a breakout season, but the 38-year-old's war does not go up. And war also doesn't account for teammates. If player A is always doubling but never scoring because his team stinks, player B, who doubles and scores all the time because his team rocks, it doesn't matter in the calculations. So, I I mean, I, I get that this is not a perfect tool here. But in terms of pure statistical analysis, if we want to go with war, which is basically determining how important your job is by what would happen if you decided not to show up. That's the best way I can explain war. Uh, What would have happened in 2006 had David Wright just never showed up for work with the Mets? So War calculates the numbers from all the utility guys at that position in all of baseball and says, okay, what would have happened if that amalgam of players had gotten David's playing time at third? In 2006, for example, the Mets were six wins better because David did play there and that faceless amalgam did not. Does that help you with War a little bit? I hope. So as we apply that to the outfield, best seasons in Mets history from an outfielder. Let's go to left field. I give you Bernard Gilkey's 1996 at 8.1. One-year wonder, no question, but 8.1 is a Mike Trout kind of number. That is very impressive. 44 doubles, 30 home runs. Also had 18 outfield assists that year, and because of that, he got a new four-year deal he then regressed to the mean, as they say. He got traded to Buck Showalter's expansion Diamondbacks. Also from left field, high up on the list, got a look at Cleon Jones in 69 at a war of seven on the dot. Joanna Cespedes in 2015 was a 2.2 in only 35 games. So extrapolate that out. He may have been an eight like Gilkey, but that was a very short, albeit wonderful, sample playing left field. To center field, Beltron was an 8.2 in 06 when he could well have been the first ever Mets NL MVP. Then uh, you look a couple years later, he ends up with a seven war. So that you really tough to do better than that. Next on the list, it's not Tommy Agee. It's not Mookie. It's not Lenny Dykstra. Lance Johnson, the one dog, was a seven in 1996. Same year Gilkey had his 8.1 in left. The right fielder that year who got lost in the sauce, that was Alex Ochoa, the Cuban-American right-hand hitter who was uh, soon after traded to the Twins for Rich Becker. Ochoa checked in at two and a half that year. And speaking of right field now, uh, where's Daryl? Where's Daryl? I'm sure you're wondering. Besides playing too deep, according to Tim McCarver, all the time. Daryl Strawberry had a 6.4 and a 6.3 in the mid-1980s. Curtis Granderson was a 5.1 in a quietly outstanding 2015, and he had that huge playoffs that year, but again, got overshadowed. In the regular season, we all looked at Cespedes instead of Granderson. In the postseason, we all looked at Daniel Murphy and what he was doing instead of Granderson. But anyway, Strawberry and Granderson, the only Mets right fielders ever 
to have a wins above replacement season of better than 4.4. Conforto's best ever was a 3.6. Marlon Byrd was close to 4 one year. He was a 3.9. But the only Mets right fielders besides Strawberry and Granderson with a, a war of four in a season, I never would have guessed this. It's only one. Joel Youngblood in 1979, splitting time out there with Elliot Maddox. Joel Youngblood had close to 40 doubles that year. But as we discussed, who was really the best Mets outfielder ever? Forget the war numbers. Obviously, it's not Joel Youngblood. I think all I'm willing to do for today is put some names on pieces of paper, throw them in a tumbler, and let you guys shake it out. Because if you're a child of the 60s, you're going to tell me it's A.G. or Cleon Jones. In the 80s, it was Strawberry with a side of Kevin McReynolds and Mookie. Some years later, it was Beltron, uh, maybe like Cliff Floyd, and then on to guys like Cespedes and Granderson. There are no true wrong answers, except probably Bobby Bonilla. Uh, next, after a brief pause, our foray into the Mets' now impressive minor league system. So according to baseball perspectives, the two prospects in the NL East that are on top of the list are indeed both New York Mets. Guys you have heard plenty about, Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty. Aram Layton of JustBaseball.com joins us, and I asked him, with Alvarez number one in the whole division, what is it that makes all the scouts everywhere so high on this guy? Francisco Alvarez is as special as it gets behind the dish. I mean, the, the type of power that he offers, uh, the ability that he's starting to show behind the dish too. Uh, but you know how hard it is to find the kind of offense uh, that you can find from Francisco Alvarez at the catching position. It's such a premium and he's got power to all fields. He's already showing a good field to hit. He's got a rocket for an arm. I mean, Mets fans have every reason to be super amped up about this guy. When you have 30 plus home run potential and an ability to stick behind the dish. I mean, you don't find that every single day. That is true. I am wondering, I mean, it just seems like there's so many organizations now, probably about a third of them have a catcher, whether it's a teenage catcher, a 21-year-old catcher, right up at the top, number one, number two. Is that something that is going to continue, do you think? I mean, are people out there looking for catching, and is that part of why that's happening, or how can you explain that? It's a really funny thing that it's funny you note that because when we put out our top 100 list at Just Baseball, uh, it was surprising when we looked back at it. I was like, look how many catchers there are. I think the real thing here is that a lot of times many of these guys don't end up sticking behind the dish. And, and that's always the big question. You look at Oakland and Tyler Soderstrom. Uh, that's a guy that, you know, he's, he's a top prospect, but he's not going to stick behind the dish. Most likely you look across the landscape. There's a lot of guys that don't have that staying power uh, and the bat ends up kind of taking precedent. When you look at a Francisco Alvarez, the reason why he's, a top five prospect in baseball for us, not only the Mets top prospect is not just because he's 20 years old and put up well above average numbers in high a, uh, which is already absurd as a 19 year old when he was there, but also because he has the staying power behind the dish. And that's something that, you know, is, is hard to find and hard to feel confident about in a 20 year old. And I think that's what really helps his prospect uh, value there. We're going to fast forward through prospects two, three, and four because they're all on the 40 man. But tell me about number five on your list, if you would. Yeah. So this was one of those guys that I was, I was really upset, Matt Allen, that we didn't get to see him last year. And uh, the good news is that he's young and still has plenty of time to, to get back, but missing the last season with Tommy John surgery, and he's probably going to miss a good portion of the 2022 season. We got to see a little flash of him in spring training before he went down with the injury and, and Allen, uh, just a great right-handed pitcher, six, three, 225 pounds. The fastball was sitting at 97 
when we saw him in the spring with a nasty curveball. And I mean, he was pitching against big leaguers. He made Starlin Castro look uncomfortable blowing a fastball by him at 98. And he made Kyle Schwarber look uncomfortable too. I mean, that is really impressive stuff from a kid that was 19 at the time as well. Allen's got big time stuff. And assuming that he comes back from Tommy John surgery, uh, as good as he was before, sometimes guys come back stronger as we know it's, it's become very streamlined. Allen is one of those guys that I think has definite top 100 upside and should be probably the top pitching prospect in this system uh, for a while as he continues to climb up through the minor leagues. He's got frontline type of stuff. You just assume he has to stay healthy and the development of the changeup, like many power guys is something to watch too, but he's already shown a pretty decent feel for it. I was glad to see JT Ginn make the list. And this is a guy that, for those who don't know, is a second round pick, a good college program. Buck Showalter will love the fact that he's a Mississippi State kid. <laughs> uh, is he ready? How close is he? So the, the, the interesting thing about Ginn is, you know, he, he also missed time with Tommy John surgery. And that was part of the reason why the Mets were able to snag him in that second round. They gave him way over the slot value to be able to sign him away. He's not quite ready yet. He did show strong in high a, uh, he is the type of guy that I think is going to climb quickly, but I still think it will be around 2023 where we see him. The one thing that really does work in Gint's favor is that he has strong command already. And his fastball gets a ton of ground balls, 60% ground ball rate last season between low a and high a because of the heaviness and his ability to locate the fastball. His slider is already a borderline plus pitch and he's showing a decent feel for the changeup. As he continues to develop and his command continues to get better, he's a guy that could climb pretty quickly, but I'm going to guess that it's probably early 2023 when we see him. What about some of the other guys on your list? Uh, there are youngsters, obviously. I mean, I kind of like the fact that uh, an Alex Ramirez, who's basically right now turning 19 years old, is turning enough heads. What do you like about him? I mean, he's just got all the tools across the board and it's really hard to project guys that, you know, you turned 19, four days ago, like you said, but when you see six, 370 pounds, you look at his swing, it is a quick bat. He's comfortable driving the ball foul pole to foul pole. He goes the other way really well. Uh, the one thing that, and it's almost every single teenager, right? He struggles with the breaking ball a little bit. It's a little bit of the body control that will start to trickle in more as, as he gets more reps. But what I love is the tools that you see across. He could stick in center field. He's got above average to almost plus speed. We've seen above average power in the exit velo department already hitting the ball well above average for a 19 year old. And he's got more room to fill out. I look at the field to hit the curveballs are the issue. He pulverizes fastballs. I assume he's going to continue to develop and uh, get more comfortable with secondaries and his approach. This is somebody that as long as the hit tool continues to come along the way, I think it can, he's got nice little five tool potential here as a very exciting piece for the Mets. And you got to have some of those high variance, high upside guys to balance out your system. And uh, you know, you got to have some lottery tickets. I love the fact that Jalen Palmer made your list. I, I always think of Butch Husky when I look at Jalen Palmer, right? you know, six, four, two, ten. I love the fact that he's a, a local product, Holy Cross high school in Flushing. Uh, why is he on the list? So Palmer He's on the list for you know, just the, the main reason being that he came out of nowhere and he has so much upside. You mentioned a local kid. That would be such a story if he's able to continue to climb through the minors and, and end up breaking in with the Mets. But a cold weather kid that typically 
offensive players from the Northeast, there's a little bit of a learning curve there because they don't see uh, as many at-bats as the kids in the warmer states of California, Florida, and Texas. They don't quite see the level of competition uh, for the most part that you see from some of those other areas. And it takes a little bit of more time to develop. But when I watch Palmer, I see a really good feel to hit for a guy that really emerged out of nowhere and doesn't quite have that uh, prospect pedigree that you'd expect from some of these other guys. And you mentioned the build. He's a big guy, but he moves really well. He still has more room to add muscle. And I was just really impressed at his ability to hit the ball where it was pitched. He ran into some baseballs as well, going dead center, a probably plus pull side power as well. When you bring in that athleticism, he could stick at third. He could play the outfield. He's got the strength. He's an above average runner. I'm really excited about this guy. Obviously, he has a long way to go in his development, but the upside is just too exciting to put him anywhere other than the top 10, especially when we're comparing him to some of the other prospects that would be in consideration. He has the upside that just none of the other prospects, I guess, offer in that range. All right, thanks so much to Aram Layton. That list he mentions is up on JustBaseball.com as of today. And finally, our Mets trail mix that we promised you before we hit the trail here. Some leftover kernels to ponder before we go. Looking at some numbers tracking Billy Wagner, and will he get the bounce needed in the Hall of Fame voting? It doesn't look like it. He's tracking it around 50%, not even 50% of the vote. Need 75%. Now, Billy's going to have three more appearances on the ballot. I think it's worth noting how far he might nudge above 50% this year. If it gets a little push, a little bounce, maybe people start taking that candidacy more seriously starting next year by the time 2025 rolls around when he is then off the ballot. Personally, I think he belongs. Another eventual Hall of Fame candidate rumored to be headed to the broadcast booth. Andrew Marchand of The Post reports that the Yankees could rescue Carlos Beltran from baseball exile with a broadcast job. David Cohen is going to miss a bunch of games this year, so maybe Beltran will indeed be around after all this summer. And if he's talking Yankees instead of Mets, he'll be critiquing the work of third base coach Luis Rojas over there, the man that replaced him as Mets manager. I don't know. I'd kind of like to see Carlos do a little something-something for SNY. It's not my department, but might as well keep it in the family. Anyway, uh, I I guess we're out of time. I hear music. Next week on Mets in the Morning, current Mets manager Buck Showalter scheduled to join us, as is Billy Epler. But for now, we prepare to say bon voyage, and thanks so much to the always amazing Mets in the Morning house band, on keyboards, Jim Hickman. Zapping to bass, Sean Dunstan. The horn section, Jeff Musselman. And on drums, give it up for Jorge Valendia. This is Josh Lewin. This has been Mets in the Morning. Thank you for listening. Talk to you in a week. Let's go Mets. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it 
in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 